From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Good evening and welcome to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm. I'm a senior fellow for Biblical Worldview and Strategic Engagement at FRC. It's my pleasure to be sitting in for Tony and with you this evening. Washington, D.C. continues to be a very busy place as we speed into the Christmas holiday, and we're going to talk about it today. Before we get there, a special reminder about a special opportunity. Thanks to the generosity of FRC friends, your your gift can have double the impact if received before December 31st. This program, everything FRC does, is made possible because of friends like you. We are so grateful for it. To have your support doubled, call 1-800-225-4008 or visit TonyPerkins.com. Again, that number is 800-225-4008 or visit TonyPerkins.com. We are so grateful for you and all that you make possible. Today on the program... Now, we learned this week about the way the FBI was controlling the flow of information on Twitter in recent years. This definitely looks bad politically, but is it also illegal? We'll discuss that coming up. In addition, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals ruled against four female high school athletes in Connecticut who have been forced to compete against male athletes. We'll give you the details and the war over words represented in that case. And speaking of war over words, Stanford University released a 14-page document titled Elimination of Harmful Language Initiative, and it's filled with words you're probably using that they think you shouldn't be using because they're harmful. We'll tell you what those words are, and we'll talk more broadly about this war over words coming up in the program. But our headline for today... Early this morning, congressional negotiators released a 4,000-page, $1.7 trillion spending plan to cover most of the 2023 budget. Here's what Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer had to say about the bill. From start to finish, from top to bottom, this omnibus is bold, generous, far-reaching, and ambitious. It's not everything we would have wanted, of course. Lots of, when you're dealing in a bipartisan, bicameral way, you have to sit down and get it done, and that means each side has to concede some things. But it is something that we can be very proud of, all of us. Well, not everyone agrees with Senator Schumer's assessment. The measure has drawn harsh criticism from 13 Republican members of Congress who sent a letter to their Senate Republican colleagues criticizing the bill, coming as it does in a lame duck session of Congress. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy echoed those sentiments, saying in a tweet that he will not support bills from any Republican senator who supports the omnibus bill, setting up a showdown between House Republicans and Senate Republicans. What's in this massive bill and how is it going to end? Joining me to discuss it all is Connor Semmelsberger, Director of Federal Affairs for Life and Human Dignity at FRC. Connor, good to see you today. Yeah, likewise. Good to see a human face instead of these 4,000 pages of the bill I've been reading all day. Well, I I believe that is true. And, you know, we talked about this yesterday, what we thought might be in it. It was released, I think, appropriately under the cover of darkness. Tell us about what's in these 4,000 pages. Boy, we've just hit the tip of the iceberg. And to, to put it simply, it's not pretty. 
Um, uh, to just hit the good things, though, there are some good things in this bill. Um, we talk about the Hyde Amendment a lot. These uh, pro-life riders, as we call them, that protect our taxpayer funds from subsidizing abortion or forcing people that have a moral objection to abortion to perform them. Those legacy riders um, are intact. So that's that's good news, as the Biden administration had been gunning for those since he, he took office. But uh, the good news sort of ends there. Um, there's many, many provisions here that do all sorts of uh, host of things, extraneous funding, supporting LGBT initiatives, some uh, grant funding that can go to Planned Parenthood. The, the list goes on and on as we read this bill more and more thoroughly, diving into the 4,000 pages, it seems to be getting worse and worse as we go. Now, Connor, I want to get into what some of these details are, because this is an omnibus bill. We talked yesterday on the program how this bill really should never be. It is a it is. 12 individual bills that, in a better world, are passed and debated and considered and amended individually that have all been thrown into one massive bill. The deadline the legislators have given themselves is Thursday, so they've given themselves you know, two and a half days to look at this and then pass a 4,000-page bill. But I want to go through some of the earmarks that we've seen just to give viewers an, an an understanding of what is included in this, because one of the reasons why they don't want it to be scrutinized carefully is because everybody can throw their pork in there and then go back to their district and say, look what I got for you. And here's some of what has been included in this. Uh, There's $1 million for Zora's house in Ohio, which is uh, a co-working and community space for women and gender expansive people of color. That's pretty specific. Uh, there's $3.6 million for a Michelle Obama trail in Georgia. I don't know what her connection is to this trail in Georgia. If they name it after her, I guess it can get funded. Uh, there's $750,000 for the Trans-Latin Coalition, which is a workforce development program and supportive services for transgender and gender nonconforming and intersex immigrant women in Los Angeles. That's very specific. I don't have any idea how big that community is because that's a very specific uh, community. There is um, $2 million for the Great Blacks in Wax Museum in Baltimore. Frankly, I feel like I shouldn't be saying that, but don't shoot the messenger uh, because that's what it's called in the bill, right? Where does this stuff come from, Connor? Yeah, it goes back to this thing. We all learn about it in our you know, 10th grade civics class, pork barrel spending. And uh, the spending is basically members get to put a specific uh, uh, offer out. Hey, I want the specific funds for this project back in my home district. And uh, thankfully, Republicans back on the Tea Party movement in the 2010s really banned these earmarks. They were not a part of appropriations bills for much of the last decade. Um, but they're back. Pelosi's House this year brought them back. The Republican uh, re- House Republicans set to take over next year have not banned them again. So they're back in play and they're back with a vengeance. Yeah, that's just a uh, list of some of the yeah. things we found as you listed out there. And so what these things are is really lining the interest of uh, those vested interests around the country that really aren't the American taxpayers, but those that just have the ear of their member of Congress to get them uh, some goody funds here at the end of the year. Now, Connor, some of the specific programs uh, or expenditures that I mentioned there, it's $3 million here, $2 million million there. Kind of feels like budget dust when we're talking about a $1.7 trillion budget. But is there any way of knowing right now what the total spending on uh, earmarks like this is? 
Yeah, I don't think we have the full spending. I think there was a couple hundred different earmarks, tons of them. But what we did calculate up is all those earmarks related to trans initiatives or LGBT efforts. That's over $11 million. And like you said, these are so specific to a specific group. I mean, there's even $3 million in the year for Chuck Schumer in his home state in New York City to build an LGBTQ history museum. So uh, the pale of what these things cover is quite a bit. And so, yeah, um, we don't know the full scope yet as we're still digging in, but it's definitely in the millions of dollars as we're uh, digging in here. Now, Connor, there is disagreement about how bad this particular option is with the omnibus bill. Now, Republican Senator Roy Blunt he seems to dislike the bill, but he also seems to suggest that it's better than the alternative. Let's play clip six. We are doing this in the worst possible way, but the only thing worse than doing it in the worst possible way with this one big bill at the end would be not to do it and kick it to a new Congress uh, that when the Congress uh, starts won't even have a Ways and Means chairman or a budget chairman on the House side or lots of other things. This is no fav- favorite of the House. If we kick this to another year and it makes it impossible to have a chance to, to get the bill that they are responsible for, the 2024 bill done in the way it needs to be done. Connor, what is Senator Blunt referring to there? Yeah, I think it's good to point out for the viewers at home, the irony here is Senator Blunt is retiring this year. So he's heading home. So, of course, it wouldn't be good for him for this bill to get kicked in the next year because he wouldn't get to have his say in how the spending goes. And that's the case for even our Senate Appropriations Chair, Richard Shelby, who's outgoing and retiring as well. But what's good to put in perspective is here is what we've been arguing for much of the last couple of weeks, even before uh, the election, is that uh, we knew this was coming down the pike. There was a momentum to push for this end-of-year spending package. And the voters, you, the American people, said, we want Republicans representing us in the House of Representatives, and we want those people setting the spending priorities for the House next year. And so that's why it's actually good for not just, you know, the partisans, but all Americans. These people are elected to represent their interests. They should be working alongside, yes, a Democratic Senate and a Democrat president to set those priorities. So we've been advocating for that as a really good measure to kick it into February. And here they are, those just wanting the last bite at the apple to get, again, maybe their pork barrel project or just their final fingerprints on a $1.7 trillion bill. Well, there is opposition to this, and it's shaping up to be a fight between Republicans, because if the entire Republican caucus in the Senate opposed this legislation, they couldn't get it to the floor for a vote, because they, couldn't get, they, do, they, they could not get past the filibuster in the Senate. So what's happened in the House is 13 House Republicans have said, have warned, sent a letter to the Senate Republicans, that if you vote for this omnibus bill— we will oppose anything that you try to do in the next legislative session when the Republicans will be in control of the House. What do you think is going to happen here? Yeah, it is quite the showdown. Like you said, uh, Senate Republicans uh, really control the cards. Uh, No piece of legislation can get through the U.S. Congress without bipartisan support, thanks to the filibuster. And so, um, you know, the, the Republicans really could band together allow help their friends out over in the house to set up uh, them for a good spending opportunity and really their own uh, interests next year. Um, but clearly, so far, they've been wheeling and dealing with their uh, Democratic colleagues in the Senate trying to get this done and trying to find at least uh, nine other friends, if you're one of these GOP senators, uh, to come along with you and vote for this bill. But like you said, it's it's really uh, not setting up for uh, you know a good set next Congress when you've got going to be a, hopefully a Republican speaker there and then uh, you know the Republicans over in the Senate there. So is this a situation where the 
Senate Republicans are going to either side with the House Republicans or with the Senate Democrats? Yeah, that's really the choice to be made. And many senators have raised that. You know, Senator Mike Lee, Senator Rand Paul, they've been down on the floor uh, hours and hours making this case. Hey, we as a conference uh, don't seem united here. When unfortunately across the aisle, the Democrats always seem united. Pelosi and her house, their Democrats have always been united. Chuck Schumer has been united, not just with his party, but even working across the aisle. And here's an, uh, an area where Republicans should be united to be a defense against this reckless spending of the Biden administration. And so far, that uni unity just doesn't seem to be there. It's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out over the next 48 hours. Connor, one other issue in about a minute. I understand there might be some backdoor student loan forgiveness included in this. Yeah, so we've heard Republicans crying foul for months, right? This is a bailout for student loans, just sending back the money. Well, guess what's in this omnibus bill? Two and a half million dollars for the Department of Education for outreach to those student borrowers that may be eligible for student loan forgiveness. So they may be saying all the rhetoric here in public that they don't want this to go through. But if they vote for this bill in the coming weeks, Senate Republicans, uh, they're voting to for the Biden administration to go forward with their uh, student loan forgiveness program. And, and Connor, last question, about 30 seconds. Any chance we see a government shutdown? It's highly unlikely. When you get this close to a deal in Texas out, it's very likely to get through, but never say never here in Washington. That is true. Never say never. Connor, it has been the yeoman's work that you were doing, pouring through this legislation. None of us really want your job, but we're grateful you are doing it and bringing everything you're learning to us. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, happy to be part of this wonderful team at FRC. Thank you, Connor. Coming up next, releases of the Twitter files keep coming. The latest round uncovered troubling information about the FBI and the degree to which they were controlling the information that Twitter was allowing to flow. Was this behavior just bad politics and just a bad look for the public? Was it also illegal? That's the conversation that we will have when we come back. Stay with us here on Washington Watch. Would you like to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading intentionally. You will dive deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues of today. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. His Word is necessary in our lives, so much so that Christ said, we are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He calls it our daily bread because we need it daily to sustain us and nourish us spiritually, just like food does physically. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. First Peter 3.15 instructs us to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks for a reason for the hope that we have. The mission of FRC's online center for biblical worldview is to carry out that verse by training Christians to advance and defend the faith in their families, communities, and the public square, as now more than ever, we need to be grounded in the truth of God's word. The Center for Biblical Worldview provides amazing written resources for a wide range of relevant issues, including biblical stances on voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality. 
Each of these topics comes as a free downloadable PDF version, abbreviated version, and Spanish translation, along with a prayer guide. To access this written series or to sign up for the Center for Biblical Worldviews monthly newsletter, visit frc.org slash worldview. Did you know that from as early as 12 weeks, and certainly by 20 weeks, an unborn child can feel pain? Did you know the issue of pornography is growing among women? Did you know that pornography, sex trafficking, and abortion are all linked and on the rise across the globe? Issues such as pornography, human trafficking, drug legalization, and abortion are all violations of human dignity and have resulted in the devaluation of human life in our culture. Family Research Council stands firm on the principle that every life has value, ought to be respected, and has been designed for a unique purpose— Educate yourself on the harms of pornography, human trafficking, and abortion so that you can offer hope and help. Learn more at frc.org forward slash life. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. So glad that you are with us. The website is TonyPerkins.com. The latest round of Elon Musk's Twitter files were released yesterday and focus on the influence the FBI wielded to control and censor content on the social media platform. According to the release, throughout 2020, the FBI repeatedly met with Twitter's head of trust and safety, encouraging him to dismiss reports of Hunter Biden's laptop as Russian misinformation. Twitter employees devoted so much time to the FBI's demands that the Bureau eventually reimbursed the tech giant $3.4 million in taxpayer money. Well, this may sound sketchy. Were any of the FBI's actions illegal? And what should be done about it? Joining me to discuss it is Tom Fitton. He's the president of Judicial Watch. Tom, thanks for coming today. Well, good evening. Good to be with you. Thank you, Joseph. Good to have you. In your opinion, as you've monitored the story, what's the most significant part of the Twitter files as it relates to the FBI? Uh, the FBI was abusing its authority to target uh, and abuse the First Amendment rights of American citizens and seems to me uh, apparent violation of the law. You know, you have a right to free speech. Uh, it's a constitutional right. It's a God-given right. And uh, the FBI just can't go in and ask someone uh, to suppress it. And, and, you know, taking a step further, even initiate an investigation on you over your First Amendment protected speech on the internet. Uh, so uh, there are several levels of corruption here at the FBI. Seems to also involve the Department of Homeland Security, and who knows what else um, in terms of other federal involvement. Yeah, I want to talk about the layers of this because it certainly does look bad politically. Now, we know that as a legal matter, at least we think, we've generally operated under the under the. Uh, expectation, excuse me, that a private company is not required to communicate someone else's message. And this is the big discussion about whether Twitter is a public forum or whether they're a private company that can say whatever they want or not say whatever they want. Obviously, the government has gotten involved here. Um, Is this something where this is um, just political or is there a reason to think that this is definitely illegal either by Twitter or by the FBI? Maybe by both. 
so that's the concern here. When you have collusion to suppress the civil rights of U.S. citizens, uh, that, you know, that violates federal law. And uh, on top of that, you had uh, targeting of citizen speech based on their discussions related to election issues. So you had suppression of the Hunter laptop story. You had the FBI targeting U.S. citizens over their material that they were posting about election disputes. So on top of the suppression of civil rights, you had potential election interference. And, you know, for instance, Twitter had told the FEC that they weren't colluding with the, the political campaign of Joe Biden or anything like that. The documents suggest otherwise. Yeah, and one of the more interesting revelations, at least to me, is the revelation that the FBI paid Twitter $3.4 million, essentially as reimbursement for employee time. So if the federal government is reimbursing Twitter for employee time, does that make them employees of the federal government? And therefore, is that just de facto evidence that we have federal agents controlling what information is communicated? Well, A, remember what Twitter was doing for the FBI. They were surveilling, sharing information about the typically constitutionally protected activities of, government, of, of U.S. citizens, and then censoring U.S. citizens at the behest of the FBI. And you get paid to do things like that. It sounds to me like you're operating, operating as an FBI informant or asset. And, uh, you know, Musk has disclosed today uh, that uh, this operation obviously didn't just include Twitter, include Facebook and YouTube. You know, so however bad it looks as to what was going on at Twitter, you have to remember, compared to Facebook and YouTube, Twitter is small potatoes in terms of the number of users. Uh, so I have a feeling this scandal is going to blow up like a mushroom cloud uh, when we get the documents, and we will get the documents. Somehow the documents will come out either through FOIA or through congressional investigations as to what type of activity uh, was going on with Facebook and YouTube in terms of censoring and directing a speech be targeted uh, for censorship. Tom, we are beginning to see a defense of Twitter's and the FBI's behavior in this case. Here's what uh, left-wing News Nation host Dan Abrams had to say about the criticism of the FBI. Let's play clip three. Criticizing the FBI is different from suggesting they were politicized and rooting for one team. The FBI has never, ever had a director as a Democrat throughout history. They've all been Republicans. So this bizarre and, in my view, anti-law enforcement effort to undermine the FBI appears to be falling flat. So, Tom, what's your response to this idea that the FBI has always had Republican leadership, therefore it couldn't possibly be doing uh, what is being suggested here? Well, uh, he's, mis he's, he's, he's misleading uh, folks because he's pretending that Republican um, partisanship means that your ideology uh, would lead you to support conservative speech. And that's not always the case. I mean, you see this now with the fights on the Hill. You have some Republicans who don't like conservative approaches uh, to public policy issues. You have battles. We're going to have a primary battle. And as we had in 2016, we're going to have another one in 2020 between President Trump and other members of the Republican Party. Uh, so, you know, there are political interests here that go beyond party. There was this ideological hatred and animus uh, for President Trump. 
and they were worried in 2016, or they pretended in 2016, that Russian bots on the internet had something to do with his victory. So no matter what happened on the internet in 2020, they were going to stop it using the idea that the Russians might be behind it, whether or not that was true. And that's what they did with the Hunter Biden laptop. And they used that as an excuse, the idea that Russians are out there to censor and spy on Americans. Yeah, it's, and it was all based on the big lie and smear of Trump. And that's not about Republican versus Democrat. That's about they don't like Trumpism. They don't like his supporters. Uh, they don't like his outlook and his public policy positions. You know, and as you know, you know, on some issues, uh, the Republicans aren't comfortable on debates about LGBT rights, uh, the transgender extremism that we're talking about, COVID, things like that. So uh, it's it's conservative versus the establishment. I think that's the way you got to think about it. Tom Fitton, Judicial Watch, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome, Bill. Coming up, a Connecticut Court of Appeals ruled against a claim of damages from high school girls forced to compete against biological boys in track. Actually, it was a Second Circuit Court of Appeals. We're going to talk about that and the war over words that has resulted when we come back here on Washington Watch. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. Last Friday, a Second Circuit Court of Appeals ruled against four Connecticut high school female athletes who alleged that forcing them to compete against boys who identify as girls violates Title IX. Now, this despite the fact that two biological males broke 17 girls' track records and they won 15 girls' state championship titles. 
Now, in an editorial published by USA Today, one of the plaintiffs wrote of the experience, quote, it tells me that I'm not good enough, that my body isn't good enough, and that no matter how hard I work, I am unlikely to succeed because I'm a woman, end quote. That's not the only message the court panel sent, as its opinion adopted the rhetoric of the transgender activists. For example, the plaintiffs were not high school girls, but rather, according to the, to the court, quote, four female athletes who are cisgender, end quote. Why is this language a problem? Joining me now to discuss all of it is Mary Zock. She's the director of the Center for Human Dignity at the Family Research Council, and she was also a Division I basketball player at Notre Dame. She joins me in studio. Mary, welcome. Thanks so much for having me today, Joseph. So first, let's just talk about the merits of the case in this decision. The Second Circuit Court of Appeals ruled against the girl, said it's not a violation of Title IX uh, to be forced to compete with male athletes who identify as female. What's your reaction to that? Well, as any woman who has played sports against men knows, there are biological differences that make a huge difference when it comes to sports. Average male athletes will beat exceptional female athletes simply because of the difference in height, in jumping ability, in speed. Those are are clear advantages for men. So to say that it's somehow not a disadvantage to women to have to compete against men is absolutely absurd. Now, I mentioned the language that was used here, and I think this is really important because the court, in its opinion, essentially created a different category of women. They said, oh, well, these four cisgender women, is the word they they used, said they were just competing against transgender women. It's, a light, it's a, like a way of saying, well, tall women were competing against shorter women, or the left-handed women were competing against right-handed women. How does that land with you to just be seen by the court and described as the court as just a different category of women than these guys who say they're women? Right. I, I think it's completely crazy. You know, this idea that being a woman is something akin to putting on a blue hat or a purple dress. It's not something that you can take on and put and, and take off. It's something that is at the core of your very being. It's, it's written in yeah. our DNA, whether we're male or female. Well, on that point, I, I would say the court seems to be suggesting that you can take it off and put it on. And what does that mean for, you know, you? Right. It, it means that women are being erased. It means that every, every, ceiling that has been broken, that that every barrier that has been crossed, all of those have just been put back up. Because we can now say, oh, you know what? Men who decide that they're women, they can be the ones to take those jobs. They can be the one to take that spot on the team. What would you say to someone who said, well, in fact, the erasure that is happening is if you deny these transgender people individuals, these boys who identify as girls, the opportunity to compete as the identity that they have claimed for themselves, if you deny them that opportunity, it's you who are erasing them. I would say there is an opportunity for men to compete. It's called men's sports. And there are not the same opportunities for women to compete. When we don't see a problem with women trying to play men's division one sports or women suddenly winning high school track meets in the men's division. What we see are men taking gold medals away from women or taking the last seat on the bench away from a girl who has tried every single day of her life to just get a spot. 
you know, to that point, one of the things the court said in their opinion is that the plaintiffs, and this is, again, for high school, uh, I think they were all track athletes, and I, I may be wrong about that, but said they were unable to prove damages in this case. That was one of the problems with their claim. What's your response to the idea that there were no damages to them? Well, first, ridiculous, ridiculous thought that there are no damages to telling a girl, no matter how hard you try, you're just never going to be good enough because you're a woman and not a man. That's an absurd statement. But but secondly, the things that we learn from sports are not necessarily things that can be measured, right? We learn how to be competitive, how to be a good winner and a good loser. And these are things that cannot be taught if the playing field isn't fair. The only thing that you learn there is that you are at a disadvantage because you're a woman. And, and this, this question of harms, I think, is interesting as well, just more broadly, irrespective of the four girls in this particular case, because isn't there just generally a harm to society if we decide, as this court clearly has, and, and, and these, these boys in Connecticut who are identifying as as women have, that there's really no difference between men and women other than what I imagine it to be. Absolutely. And, you know, it's fun. It's if we look at car accident reports, we see that every year significantly more women than men are killed in car accidents because the test dummies for car accidents when they're simulating women are just shrunken men. That's not what a woman is. A woman's not a smaller version of a man. She's something different. And that difference needs to be respected. That's very powerful, Mary. Uh, we, I know this conversation is not going away, but thanks for taking some time for us today. Thanks, thanks for, for having us. me. Coming up, we're going to continue this conversation, not just about this case, but about the broader war on words that is represented in it. Stanford University has just released a 14-page document that's a list of words that you should never use again complete with explanations for why. Some of them are funny, and some of them are terrifying. We're going to tell you about it when we come back. Stay with us right here on Washington Watch. What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need to find a model of godly manhood, leadership, and strength. But where can they find it in our culture? Stand Courageous Men's Ministry was created to help men find this model of godly manhood and to develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. Join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who understand the issues men face. They unpack our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can make an influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, Family Research Council created a tech subscription platform to be sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. It is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. So if we get canceled, you can still access updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. 
Again, just text STAND to 67742 and you will get alerts on the biggest stories of the day. With just a simple text, always have access to our content and stay informed and connected with like-minded community. Text STAND to 67742. That's STAND to 67742. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student, specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. Welcome back to Washington Watch, and we are all dreaming of a white Christmas, and increasingly it looks like that's going to happen for a lot of us across the country. I'm Joseph Backholm, Senior Fellow here at FRC, filling in for Tony. Uh, continuing the discussion from the last segment with Mary Zock, there's a lot more to consider about the Second Circuit Court of Appeals ruling against the high school girls in Connecticut who have been forced to compete against biological males. The court's panel ruling was exclusively framed by the terms of the transgender movement. And though the plaintiffs were girls forced to compete against boys, the court saw them as, quote, four female athletes who are cisgender, forced to compete against female athletes who are transgender, end quote. You see what they did there. Now we're seeing this more and more in so many different areas. And joining me to help us understand it all is Meg Kilgannon, Senior Fellow for Education Studies at Family Research Council. And she joins me here in studio. Meg, good to see you today. Good to see you, Joseph. Now, we just talked to Mary about this this Second Circuit Court of Appeals decision. First, I want to give you a chance to react to that. As a woman, what does it mean to you when the Court of Appeals just tells these high school girls no harm has been done to you by forcing you to compete against males. The the assignment of the term cisgender to describe these girls is just offensive on its face. And this is this is the left understanding the need to control the terms in an argument. They establish the terminology. They require you to use that terminology. And in doing so, they cede a lot of the argument away from you. Uh, on the battlefield. You see this also with the acceptance of certain expert witnesses in these cases. In the defense of the SAFE Act, for example, or similar cases across the country that uh, seek to limit medical procedures for minor children, they will, judges will refuse to consider an expert doctor one who does not treat transgender uh, children, right? And so, there you go. So you, by <laughs> definition, being an expert means you agree with us. Means It means that you think it's great 
to give children medical treatments that we're trying to outlaw, right? <laughs> and if you do not agree with us, you fail to meet the, the, the definition of an expert. So wouldn't you know it, all experts happen to agree with us. Yes. It's convenient how that works. It, it, it is convenient. Now, the language here, in, uh, one of the interesting, I think it, it's more than a clue, but what we know is true is that just by virtue of them using the term cisgender, right, which is a made-up term to try to to try to set up a, a framework in which transgender is just a different kind of woman other than a cisgender woman, rather than there being women and men. There's now these different categories that kind of grants the premise of their argument. And isn't it true that, like, with the use of preferred pronouns, use of the term like cisgender, I already know what you think without you telling me what you think because of the words that you're using? Absolutely true. Absolutely true. And um, to to think that there needs to be some sort of a qualifier or descriptor on a term like woman or man is absurd. Um, and it makes it makes it clear that you are not for justice, you're for social justice, because you are seeing the need to modify a term that does not need any further description. And we've discussed how this is being applied in, you know, in the gender debate. But it's much broader than that, and I want to get into this with you, <laughs> right? Because this, this document, and, 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 and I'm holding here a 14-page document titled The Elimination of Harmful Language Initiative. Now, this is interesting because it's filled with, I don't know, it, it's hundreds of words to be sure. I don't know how many hundreds of words. But just the title itself, and we're going to get into some of what these, what these words are. What do you read into the significance of the fact that they're not just saying words we prefer we, we think you should use this instead of this. It's like a talking points memo. Sometimes those come out in political right. context all the time. We think this is more useful. They're not just saying better words or worse words. They're saying there's harmful words, and then there's non-harmful words. You, of course, should use the non-harmful words. What do you think of the significance of that? Sure. Well, the elimination of harmful in, uh, language, right? If I'm against this, then I'm, I'm for dangerous language, right? Yeah. I'm for keeping. And you are harming people. Har, har, I'm implicitly. For, I'm, right, implicitly. And so you see, again, this is how they, they control the terminology and immediately set the terms of the engagement in a way that means that one side must lose. Now, we're going to get into some of these words here, but I want to talk about the categories because the, the words have been broken down into categories. They, there's categories of ableism, of ageism, of colonialism, of culturally appropriative language, of gender-based language. There's violent language, right? right. So I, I, some of the terms that you should not use because they are violent terms— um, includes Some of my favorites, honestly. Beating a dead horse? I say that all the time. You do. <laughs> and you should not say that because Apparently that not. is violent. Well, well, beating a dead horse would they, be violent, but do we not they, understand the, the... The significance of it, The right? metaphor, right? That, it that's doesn't not, mean that I killed the horse. And we're not I'm asking you to actually horse. go beat a dead horse. No, we just understand just... that that's a futile endeavor, right? That's the point. <laughs> this is a futile thing to do. Exactly. So why exactly. should we not be able to say that? Well... I, I guess I, I could could describe this. There's more than one way to skin this cat, Joseph, which is another one yes. that we're not allowed to say because that would skin the cat. Yes, <laughs> that Do would not be say violent that. Also against violent. cats, right? Also violent, right? Uh, but no, we're not. We're we're the need for them to categorize terminology to define those terms, and in some cases, they don't even know what the saying means, like the one about. Um, 
there are too many chiefs and not enough Indians. Yes. They say that that means that you have too many ideas. Well, you will also find that both the word chief and Indian are disfavored they're, on this list. Right. They're already, are already also supposedly words you should, banned. But right? you should definitely not use them together. Definitely not use them together. Definitely but not together. That means that you have too many people in charge and not enough people doing the work. And it, it, that's not insulting to anybody who is organized in groups of chiefs and Indians. It's just a way to make it obvious to everybody that we have too many people bossing around and not enough people actually doing anything. Right. <laughs> One thing that I was surprised by as I went through this list, one of the other uh, disfavored phrases, because it's not just a word, in the violent word category is trigger warning. And this surprises me because I thought that was their term. I thought they invented (laughs) trigger warnings because they wanted to be able to, you know, alert someone to when they were going to be triggered. But according to the document, it says the phrase trigger warning can cause stress about what's to follow. So just saying trigger warning, the fact that there's potentially something that you might hear that you would not like is itself uh, sure. violence. And additionally, one can never know what may or may not trigger a particular person. Well, I would be willing to guess that the sort of people that come up with a, a list of words like this would be the same people who would disagree with parents who go to school board meetings and read pornographic books out loud to the school board that they find in their children's libraries. They would not necessarily find that information triggering, but they don't want us to talk about it. Well, and that brings up the broader point that, you know, it's like beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? And we are all offended by by different things, which is, of course, true. So let's get into this, like, bigger question about why? And I, I don't know if it's fair to characterize this as a speech code. It's not a legal document right. yet. And it is. It is. A, it's part of a of an IT mm-hmm. um, coding and language uh, uh, effort to be more inclusive in their language. So I guess maybe they're afraid that only certain kinds of people get into IT work. I don't know. Well, uh, but how this is going to be applied? You know, one of the things I, I mean, that I also observed about this, one of the words that you're not supposed to use is Hispanic. I don't think Hispanic people are bothered by it. And, of course, what they are suggesting in this document is that you use the the, the word Latinx or Latinx, however they want you to pronounce that, instead. Though I feel like this document is already a little bit behind the times because I've heard other left-wing kind of pundits, speech monitors say that, well, Latinx, Latinx is now kind of out of favor because nobody in the Hispanic community actually likes that term. So let's go back to Hispanic. Doesn't that just reveal the fact that these rules are constantly changing and we create a pretty hostile world if we are monitoring people's speech to this degree well and do we have to assume that people have a hostile intent in the language that they use (laughs) isn't that the rule yeah we assume that everyone is kind of hostile to you but this isn't the case right People people have idioms that they use based on where they live. People have colloquialisms that is that are part of their language, and and um, I, you know, I I don't think that's a, a. But isn't it kind of a defining characteristic of progressivism these days that we must assume the worst yes. about the motives and the intentions of our neighbors? Is that is that? I mean, am I assuming the worst by saying that? I mean, it just seems that that's the case, that when you obsess about things, you know, war room, we can't say war room, we can't say circle the wagons, we can't say Geronimo, we can't say guru, we can't say tribe, you know, we can't say brave. The word brave is on this list of things you shouldn't say, right? right? 
Who's supposed to follow this stuff? And the rules are always going to change. Isn't it just a better world to say, hey, let's assume the best about our neighbors. If they do something terrible to you, you know, tell them, correct them. But isn't this creating a world where we people are just over the top sensitive and nervous and we just can't we can't get along with anybody because we are suspicious of everyone for everything. I think that's very true. And it, it, it makes me wonder if if as the economy worsens and people have more serious problems in their immediate lives, if maybe some of this will calm down a little bit if we have bigger problems facing us. <laughs> well, that is a very fair point. These are first world These problems, are, right? You go are. to Haiti today, they couldn't care they less care about, about any of this. If you are really just trying to survive, I mean, it is a luxury to be able to worry about pronouns and who's saying guru, to right? Be sure. I mean, to that point. How significant is this? How strongly, and we see how this works in Connecticut in that case, and and we see how kind of the pronouns are inserting themselves everywhere, and they really are kind of creating this corporate and governmental, like, dividing line. If you use your pronouns, if you list your preferred pronouns, you're a good person. If you don't, don't. you're a bad person. Right. Right. How how hard should we fight on this hill of, no, you cannot control my language. No, I will not cooperate with your speech codes. Well, I mean, I think we've talked about it already in the show today with with what's been uncovered at at Twitter and other social media companies and the governmental interference in those areas. Um, This is a a totalist kind of approach, right? They want to control what you say, which means they can control how you speak, how you speak to other people. And eventually that leads to controlling what you think, right, or attempting to control what you think. And this this isn't something I think that we should take lightly. We can make fun of it because it's silly, right, at this level. But the impulse behind it and the seriousness with which the people who promulgate this kind of thing is something to be very aware of. And I think the title of this thing, again, I'll go back to that. Elimination. Suggests why it's so important because they're referring to it as harmful language. Because I really think there is an impulse to not just make this like this is our preference and, you know, just as a matter of courtesy, we'd like you to use these words or not. I really believe because they believe speech is violence, because they are pro like uh, hate speech codes and hate speech prevention and basically everything they disagree with is now hate speech because words are violence. That there would be, if we tolerated it, an attempt to not just suggest this in a document from the IT department right. in Stanford, but ultimately put the force of law behind this, like we have seen mm-hmm. in cities like New York, where you can face a fine of up to $250,000 if you decline to use preferred pronouns. Is that where this is going? Right. Well, and we've seen this in the international community with, uh, you know, women in the UK being rounded up for saying that they don't think men are women. Um, and, and called in before the police to, to right. account for their the social media postings. Uh, we, we saw the case of Pavi uh, in Northern Europe, where she read the Bible on the floor of uh, their legislature, and that was not acceptable, right? I mean, this is where this all leads, and right. we don't have to look too far away yeah. to see evidence of the fact that what we're warning about does actually happen. Now, Meg, I suspect that there are people listening to our conversation and saying, oh, you're overreacting. You know, why can't we just be courteous to our neighbors? And, of course, you and I would agree that we want to be courteous to our neighbors, right? Of course. So of we, course. We, we want to be good neighbors. We want to be cooperative. We're not going to go out of our way to, uh, to offend people. But where's the line between 
courtesy to our neighbors, just kindness to them, and surrendering to totalitarian impulses that will ultimately just destroy life as we know it. Right. Well, I mean, isn't this exactly the point? You've called me cisgender, and now you say I'm not nice if I complain about it. Right? This is the issue. Exactly. We're not fighting an offensive war in this case. We are fighting a defensive war. And because their first volleys are words and, you know, and they characterize them as hateful, we are hateful if we respond in an object, you know, to object to that. So it's a it's a pretty big problem. And I, I think that if we have time, you can see the way that they lay this out in the in the Chris Cuomo clip that we have. Oh, yes. He, he's a textbook example of the, the way they set up this predicate. Yes, which I have. Let's, let's play that. Let's play that and give her a chance to respond. So what is the beef here? Does having the word for woman or man include people who identify that way really change what the word means? And why must we use this as a political weapon? That's how I see it. A naked political party play to create a worse than for the right to show the left is perverse and un-American. And that while the left may charge the right with ignoring science during the pandemic, the left is worse. The left wants us to change what science says about human beings. Meg, your response to Chris Cuomo? (laughs) Well, when a Cuomo is is talking about about not manipulating language, it's pretty amusing because his, uh, you know, father Mario Cuomo was the inventor of I'm personally pro-life, but I wouldn't inflict that on anyone else, right? So he, he sets up this argument where they're not doing anything here. We're, we're, yeah. What's wrong with what we're doing? We're not doing anything. Why is the right so upset? Yeah. That's exactly the point. Make you again. Thanks so much. Thank you. Friends, words matter. That's why they've created this list. You need to be aware of that. It should matter to you as well. We'll see you tomorrow here on Washington Watch. Until then, fear God, but nothing else. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.